Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, Naval Institute's Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me is my co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. So what's happening in the essay contest world? We have some coming up that the listeners should know about. These are really great opportunities for a couple of reasons. One, RSA contests actually feature significant money. So the top prize for most of our contests is $5,000. Not bad for uh, maybe putting in a couple weekends no, worth of work for a research paper. Good coin. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a significant coin. So $5,000 for first prize, $2,500 for second prize, and $1,500 for a third prize. And uh, right now we have... Um, uh, so the ones that are running right now, so for all our younger listeners who are midshipmen, cadets, uh, in a commissioning program leading to a commission in the Navy, Marine Corps, or Coast Guard, we have the 2020 Midshipmen and Cadets Essay Contest. Uh, deadline is 15 November. We've got uh, for uh, young officers, uh, lieutenant commander and major and below, uh, so 01 to 04, the, the uh, Leadership Essay Contest, sponsored by Dr. Philip London and Khaki International. That's also due date of uh, 15 November. Um, coming due on the 30th of November, 2020 Information Warfare Contest, sponsored by Booz Allen and Hamilton. And then uh, coming up a little bit later on is the uh, General Prize Essay Contest. This is our oldest, the granddaddy of all of our essay contests. Top prize of that one is $6,000. It's not 5000 um, and then we've got another one, um, uh, coming due at the end of January. It's the first time we've ever run this one, the diversity and inclusion essay contest sponsored by Raytheon Technologies. So five essay contests due between now and January 31st, a uh, significant prize money. And, uh, remember also, and I, I, I always tell people, uh, writing for our essay contest is the gouge because, you know, we may get. For example, in the general prize essay contest every year, we get around about 100, plus or minus uh, five or 10, 100 essays. Um, three of them are winners, of course, right? We'll publish all three in the uh, May issue of Proceedings. Uh, but we will probably publish another 10 or 15 at least of those uh, essays. I think last year it was, it was probably more like an extra 20 or more. Uh, so we'll get some great essays. Um, even if you're not a winner, you'll be evaluated for uh, publication in Proceedings or on our blog. Uh, so if you've got an idea and want to write for the Naval Institute, if it aligns with one of our essay contests, submit to the essay contest, and then, boom, you have a chance, uh, even if um, if you don't win money, you have a chance of getting published uh, anyway. So uh, that's that's the big news on essay contests. Coming and up. also essay contest winners wind up being guests on the Proceedings Podcast. That may they actually do. be the biggest draw of all. They, they do. And yes. they also, we, you know, there's a recognition ceremony for all of them, right? So the general prize essay contest, we recognize those winners every year at our annual meeting. So uh, usually that's an in, in-person event uh, at CSIS. So we pay to uh, fly the winners out to the Washington, D.C. area if you're not in the D.C. area. And uh, yeah, yes. great opportunity to be uh, recognized. Well, joining us on this episode of the Proceedings Podcast is Vice Admiral Daryl Cottle, U.S. Navy. He is commander of U.S. Submarine Forces. His article in the October Proceedings starts on page 20. It is titled, Sustaining the Submarine Forces Competitive Edge. Welcome to the show, Admiral. Well, thank you very much, Bill. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my article and, and uh, look forward to the uh, podcast. 
So, sir, your article starts off with uh, what we call the deck text at, at a time when the U.S. Navy faces intense competition from peer and near-peer adversaries. The submarine force still provides a significant advantage, one we do not take for granted. Let's talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, one of the purposes of the article that I really wanted to get across was to uh, clearly illustrate uh, to your readers, you know, how the submarine force differentiates itself from other submarine forces worldwide and other communities in the joint force. And, uh, and I wanted to make sure that people understood that that differentiation really comes from our significant advantage that we hold over our competitors. But it's an advantage that can easily be fleeting if we do not sustain it. And so the, the article goes through a series of things that gives us that advantage today and highlights, I think, throughout with different uh, uh, vignettes throughout the, the article that clearly makes it uh, understandable that it can be lost and then without concerted effort by, uh, by the submarine force team, uh, then we could lose it very easily. And it would be terrible to do that because it took so long to gain that advantage. So one of the advantages you point out early on is that the U.S. submarine force is all nuclear powered. So, and you and you point out especially that you've got a uh, right now, particularly I think in the Virginia class submarines, the ones that we're building right now, a, a reactor design that is uh, particularly it's both powerful and it's effective and it's working. It's working really well. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it falls under the nuclear power aspect, really falls under the, uh, the idea of how self-sufficient we are, Bill. And in the self-sufficiency part of, is one is kind of the primary uh, facet of our, of our competitive advantage. And so because we're all nuclear, our submarine can do sustained, persistent operations in forward theaters, really limited only through the food we carry on board and the ordnance we carry. And that nuclear power plant gives us all the electrical power, all the propulsion power, the ability to make water and oxygen and sustain those clandestine operations for long periods of time. So that's, that's, that's a huge piece of the, uh, our ability to do that, uh, that forward operations and not have to have reach back and uh, to sustain ourselves. So self-sufficiency is a big piece of that. Well, you mentioned that the USS Newport News, SSN 750, just recently had an unprecedented 137 straight days at sea. That's, that's pretty incredible. Well, you know, and the interesting part of that is, you know, one of our oldest ships in the fleet is USS uh, Newport News, which may be hard to believe to many that are listening today that now that is one of the oldest. But, uh, yeah, so she ends up doing a, uh, a, a UCOM deployment and then gets pushed over into CENTCOM and does 137 continuous days on station as one of our oldest submarines. That's really something that where maybe surface ships can do those kind of numbers because they're being replenished. But when you're inside of a, uh, a small black submarine for, you know, for 137 days without any real communication with families and, uh, and to be able to do that without really being sustained in any other way, that's a true technological marvel. I mean, it's, it's really something only the U.S. Navy can do. So I'm very proud of that accomplishment for Newport News. What are the leadership challenges of that? Well, one of the things we have found with long period sustained operations is uh, just like any human, we can become fatigued. And when we become fatigued by staying on station a long time, then standards can drop. So one of the things we try to do for folks that are on pretty much anything over 90 days is get a team on board them, if possible, to just try to check to see how 
the ship's doing, making sure the standards are being at the level that we hold them in the U.S. submarine force. But because Newport News was in a posture that really couldn't do that because for operations, well, she had to do that on her own. So that commanding officer had to make sure that he was keeping those standards at the highest levels. Now, we were able to communicate to him and making sure that we're that we are here to if he needs to pull off station, we're ready to do that if he sees a slip in standards. But he was able to, to keep that going and making sure his team was at the highest levels. So fatigue is something we have to watch just being out there that long. So no fresh fruits and vegetables for that crew after about 30 days, right? That's exactly right. So they went down to their uh, kind of battle menu, and uh, so not a lot of fresh there. But uh, because we do really, no question, and I'm not kidding about this, have the best culinary specialists in the world of any service. And uh, I say that just, uh, just without any reservation that those guys know how to continue feeding that crew with just top-notch uh, chow. And uh, the, so the crew was not hurting in any way on good food. It sounds like a Jules Verne novel, right? Um, <laughs> they make you know all kinds of stuff out of seaweed. And So what was the nature of the mission? Obviously, unclass. Um, so CENTCOM AOR, um, is this Strait of Ormuz kind of stuff? Or what, what were they doing uh, for so long there? Well, they are in support of operations in the uh, in the Arabian Gulf and the Persian Gulf. So it's it's some of that, and it's operations in support of operations in the Red Sea as well. So both of those areas are, are areas where the uh, Newport News conducted uh, her clandestine operations. So, like you said, vigilance. There's no timeouts. There's no layups. You know, you got to be on the step at all times. That's exactly right. And if you think about the time she was there. You know, Operation Sentinel is going on where the maximum pressure campaign against Iran is going on. So tensions are pretty high. So, uh, you know, Newport News was there conducting uh, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance mission, as well as bringing to bear her uh, T-LAMs and torpedoes if necessary. Sir, the second part of your uh, article, you get to you talk a little bit about the culture of self-assessment and problem resolution. So Ward's an old aviator. I spent much of my career uh, in the aviation community as a naval intelligence officer, you know, and debriefing every mission is is part of what uh, aviators do. So talk about what's that like for the submarine force? Well, you know, I know the aviators try to claim they do this well, but I think we wrote the book on it. So I'm just going to just, you know, again, I mean, Admiral Rickover is the father of self-assessment. A lot of people think he's the father of the nuclear Navy. He is the father of self-assessment. And I mean, shameless, critical self-assessment. And uh, he forces great uh, in his program at the time, and it's just carried on since, a deep introflection of how we look at ourselves. And there's a little model that we kind of use in the nuclear Navy that's a pyramid of deficiencies. So there's kind of third order, second order, first order, if you will. And we want a broad third order base. I mean, these are things that are happening on every ship, every airplane, in any organization, these little small deficiencies, things that are going wrong. We want to look at those and put and nip those in the bud so they don't turn into kind of second order. And second order things are things that you would think about would be something that maybe would cause a, an incident or a casualty uh, something, you know, reportable, if you will, something you'd have to report off the ship. And then by keeping the third order stuff in check, we don't get the second and we certainly don't get the first order, which would be a kind of a class A mishap. So by really beating down those third order deficiencies by this deep self-assessment, this critical look at ourselves, uh, we, we manage that very well. So once problems are identified, the other half of the equation is we don't just write them down kind of and, and put them on the shelf. 
we really, really attacked those in the submarine force with just an unrelenting drive to problem resolution. In fact, uh, I hold uh, once a quarter, uh, Blake Converse and I at SUBPAC actually discuss all the deficiencies that we are tracking force-wide, where they are in resolution, and making sure that we're closing those out so they just don't sit for years without being uh, driven to their final end. So to that point about self-assessment, um, talk a little bit, because I, I know the answer, uh, but but a lot of our listeners may not have heard this before, but uh, I think it's pretty impressive in the culture of the submarine force that junior enlisted people are expected to point out problems, right? That they're not just, uh, oh, you know, hey, I, I can't say anything because I'm not the CEO or I'm not a department head. They are expected to raise their hand and say, uh, I got a, there's a problem here. We need to fix it. Or you created a problem where something was done wrong and it wasn't, wasn't, you know, it was on my watch team. Right. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, you nailed it. Uh, I mean, I should have brought that up. It's such a great point. When we critique ourselves, when something happens, one of the points that we critique is how watch team backup occurred. So we kind of coined the term forceful backup. So we not only have an expectation of folks underneath, you know, the lower tiered petty officers within a watch section to speak up and say something, we actually hold them accountable if they had not done that. So you can actually get yourself into a little bit of trouble in our, uh, in, within the submarine culture if you, you knew something, you could have said something and didn't say something. So uh, we, uh, we give positive feedback when that happens well, and we make sure that they are uh, rewarded and called out for that positively. And then, but we have no issue holding someone accountable if they fail to do that. So you got it exactly right, Bill. That is a cultural piece for us. So you mentioned Admiral Rickover, um, and I know time is marching on, and, and so I apologize, but it, are you old enough to have interviewed with him? I didn't. I missed him by just about a, maybe about a year and a half. So I was like right when Kenner McKee uh, became uh, his relief. And uh, so I did not get to, uh, I was in the Navy while he was still alive, but uh, uh, I did not interview under him. Sir, talk a little bit about the uh, warrior ethos. That's the next uh, sort of chapter of your article, if you will. You, you mentioned the USS Harder, Commander Sam Dealey. Uh, World War II and the the legacy of of that history and how you guys are keep try to keep that alive in the submarine force. You know, it's been a long time since a U.S. Navy submarine, you know, fired a torpedo in anger. Uh, so how do you keep a warrior ethos alive when it's been you know 60, 70, 70 plus years? When you are a force who has the expectation on it to be the first in the fight, which Admiral Converse wrote in this uh, proceedings article as well. So our articles kind of go together, if you will. Uh, it is extremely important that the, the crew on board just have knife into teeth level uh, warrior ethos. And so we are extremely proud of our heritage of warfighting tenacity. We have a lot of role models that we look up to in that. Uh, several Congressional Medal of Honor winners that we all know. And then just countless Navy uh, uh, cross winners as well. And one of the places we recognize them is in the Skipper's Lounge there in Pearl Harbor. Uh, and uh, if you ever get a chance to go to the Skipper's Lounge, you'll see all their pictures up. And it's just, a, it's like holy ground for us. And so we build this into everything we do from events like getting our dolphins, where we read a passage of someone's war patrol. 
and we make sure we give uh, that honor. We bring that to bear when we have our uh, submarine birthday ball, which I think is the greatest birthday ball. You know, just to give context for people on the net here, it's not uncommon in Hawaii to have an enlisted birthday ball that celebrates our birthday in April, it started in 1900, to have uh, 2,000 people attend that. So that's a group of like 2,000. Then the next night, we have another 1,000 with the officers. So it's because we can't get a place for everybody to be in at once. So we just have a, a strong uh, uh, tribal heritage in the submarine force, and it all leverages this work that was done in the Pacific during World War II. So um, we think it's extremely important to keep that going, and we carry on that today. And I mentioned a few people in the article, like Sam Dealey, Dick O'Kane, Red Ramage, Eugene Flucky. All these people really stuck it to the enemy back in their day, just bold, tenacious warfighters. Well, the Naval Institute headquarters is Beach Hall, uh, and so Ned Beach fits in that uh, cohort as well. You know, uh, um, you know, Sea of the Triton, first uh, nuclear submarine to circumnavigate the globe, submerged, uh, definitely showed the efficacy of nuke power in the uh, in the fifties, and uh, you know, sounded a uh, a warning shot to uh, our enemies that we had a capability now. Um, that was pretty substantial. Um, I got to meet him at the end of his life. Uh, it was towards the end of my career. Um, we actually did some book signings together um, and uh, remind the audience that he, uh, as well as a number of nonfiction books and proceedings articles, he also wrote a novel called Run Silent, Run Deep that is maybe the standard, even beyond Hunt for October, of submarine literature. Uh, was made into a movie featuring uh, Clark Gable and Burt Lancaster. You know, so wow. when you're watching T Turner classic movies, you, you might see that one come up, you know. Can I mention something sure. about Ned? Yes, sir. Absolutely. You know, Ned Beach came to the USS Montpelier when I was executive officer in Norfolk, and he was going to speak at the submarine birthday ball, believe it or not, of all things. He had been invited to be the guest speaker, and uh, he comes on board and wants a tour of the, uh, the Montpelier, and we get him a tour, and he signed some books. And I got to meet him when I was XO, and of course I knew who he was, and, but I got to really spend the whole day with him. Um, so he speaks that night at the birthday ball and comes to tears during that event when he starts talking about how poor the weapons performed in the early stages of World War II. And he had lost shipmates in World War II because of those weapon problems, either you know starting off in the torpedo tube and not being not leaving and being ejected properly to self-homing, coming back on the ship and attacking on ship. And uh, you know he really, really, really got to uh, Ned about uh, think, reflecting back on a lot of the shipmates he had lost because of some of those uh, those problems of the weapons. Well, later, about three weeks later, I get this package in the mail. And what he had done is he had made tie class for everybody who was in the wardroom by taking these little small miniature dolphins and basically kind of grinding the uh, the pins off the back and putting them on a gluing them on a tie class. It's just something he made for folks. And to this day, I wear Ned Beach's tie class, you know, with my SDBs, my my service dress uniform, and uh, always reflect on him when I put that when I put my tie on. I love you know, that. Well, another thing about him uh, that I saw firsthand. Because he was a, you know, he just exuded warrior ethos, right? He had forearms like Popeye, just a, a tough-looking guy out of central casting. Um, but when Mids would say "beat Army" at the end of the national anthem, that just bugged him to death. He would lose it. He's like, "This is not navy blue and gold. Do not say "beat Army" at the end of the national anthem." That was just his pet peeve. 
Um, he, he, I saw him dress down a couple of mids uh, in, in alumni hall that were that happened to do that. Uh, so let's let's roll to a outstanding people. So I did not know this factoid you put in there. Forty two percent since twenty fifteen of the Stockdale winners are submarine officers. Yes, sir. We're pretty proud of that. I mean, so since 2015, yeah, we've uh, we've gotten about over 40 percent of the Stockdale Award winners for leadership. You know, while only really being about 14 percent of the unrestricted line officer um, uh, grouping there. And we just won it this year with uh, Commander Will Wiley. He is the commanding officer on the USS John Warner. So he's going to be a Stockdale Award winner himself. So extremely proud of that. So we do think we have very, very good people. So I, since you were hooting on aviators earlier, I'll hoot on the submarine force. When I was at the academy, the knock on the submariners was they were very zero defect, right? And there wasn't a whole lot of charisma, right? So if you guys, as you talk about warrior ethos and you don't win the Stockdale Award unless you have some measure of, of charisma and referent leadership, is this something you've sort of uh, consciously worked on o- over the years since the mid-80s or, or is that, has it always been a misperception? Um, I don't, th- I, it's probably been a little bit of a misperception, but I, I think it's, uh, it ga- I think it captures a, a big grouping of our submarine officers. I mean, we're very technical and can be a little uh, straight faced if you will, but I think it's been a value system change in how the Navy looks at leaders across the board and picking leaders to move up that have a little more and, uh, demonstrative enthusiasm, flair, passion, a little more charisma. So I think it's, it's uh, it's how we're rewarding that those traits, not just on technical acumen. So, you know, I think when I was the first a junior officer, you could move up very high in the submarine force just by being a smart nuke. And now, you know, because we're so integrated with the joint force, because in, in big Navy strike group operation, distributed maritime operations, you got to be wider. You can't just be just a good nuke. And so I think Navy wide that that's been a shift. And I think the submarine force has kind of followed suit. So, sir, if you go back in proceedings into the probably the early 90s, mid to late 90s, even uh, probably to 2000 or, be, or so, uh, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, women in combat, women in the Navy. Uh, and one of the one of the last holdouts, if you will, on that was women in the submarine force. And it was always like, hey, you know, submarines are special. They're really small, very tight knit crews. There's very little you know, personal space on board a submarine. And then after some period of time, what was it, 2010? It's not not been that long ago. The submarine force started integrating women, and you point out in your uh, in your article here that women are doing exceptionally well as submariners. Talk about that a bit. Well, you know, to the to your listeners, I would just say, hey guys, step up. You know, because the women are just they're just crushing crushing the guys. I mean, they really are. And we uh, we were a holdout, you know, predominantly because the ship design we felt just couldn't give women the privacy they needed to be integrated for a long time until we really figured out how to do that effectively. And, and like you said, uh, Bill, that started in 2010 in earnest. Now we're up to 100 officers, uh, females uh, that are in and over 230 enlisted. And we've done that in a very deliberate way that, quite frankly, I'm extremely proud of how we've approached our integration. We didn't try to oversell and kind of get a problem where we had a retention issue. And then, then I end up with a department head problem where I can't man the department heads that I need. And so we've been bringing the women in in a, in a programmed way, starting out with the dual crewed ships first. And now we have uh, them on board uh, Virginia class. And we're just opening up opportunity in Norfolk and San Diego as well. 
So, and the reason that's important is a lot of our females are married to service members, males themselves, and that gives opportunity in the concentration areas for continued service. Where if they, you know, if they're married to another community, if I only have opportunity in submarine only locations, that's that's a tough challenge for them to want to stay in. We thought we would see something like 12, 15 percent retention, and we're seeing numbers like 20 to 25 percent. And so our retention of female officers has exceeded our expectations as well. And if you read the article, you'll also see that while they're just about six percent of our wardroom by population, you know, they're almost 23% of my junior officers of the year. And so, you know, there's a seven time factor there that they're outperforming the males. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. One, to just be selected in as a woman officer is, is really a high level cut already. And then I think just because they're there with so many males, they really have to lean in and uh, they've ri risen to the call to just perform exceptionally well. Yeah, the ones we've dealt with either as proceedings contributors, been guests on the podcast, or some of our mid-facing initiatives like our internship, and we run an extracurricular activity called The Profession, and the OREP, the original OREP was a female submariner, have been uniformly sharp officers and very proactive and, and earnest and, and caring. You know, it's just been an impressive, impressive bunch of uh, folks there. So that's no surprise to me that they're breaking out like that. Also, I was... Uh, happy to hear that they they are oversubscribed right that the, this is cuz it could have just as easily gone the other way in terms of popularity so good on good on the subforce for getting this right at the outset uh, which is always as we know um, can be fragile and 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 obviously you guys did it right there we're pretty happy about that you know and it's it, we need women because again we're having some uh, retention issues or junior officers in general and uh, I addressed that in the article. And one of the things that we're, we've been working on is how to really reward talent. That's something through our feedback from junior officers that they, they really want is to be broken out when they perform well. And so through these talent management boards where we actually look at records and actually uh, help a senior group of 06s look at these records and actually go through a board selection process that if the officers that have the merit are actually getting opportunities presented to them to do things like Olmstead scholarships and other programs at some of our greatest institutions like MIT. And in fact, I'm about to have a junior officer symposium tomorrow on 27 October. Uh, and, and we're going to actually have a group of selected junior officers all day. We're going to, Admiral Grady's going to be talking to them. I'm going to be talking with them. And uh, we're going to be getting soliciting feedback from them. Bruce Grooms, an African-American admiral, who uh, is going to be talking about inclusion and diversity with them. And uh, we're pretty excited about that. It gives them an opportunity to give us direct feedback through the working groups they're going to be in. And it lets them know we're really listening to them as well. So what's the current bonus situation? You're talking about retention. Uh, what, where are we looking in terms of uh, initial signing, uh, re-upping? How, how are we looking on that front? Well, those bonuses span from about 10000 kind of at the signing level all the way up to $50,000 a year, depending on uh, the different situations you can be in. And so the largest bonus we have now at the 50, we're just making a policy change for that, is actually for our post-major command 06s, because they can leave at around the 26-year point. We have found that, and they serve in so many countless vital roles in our, in our military, not just in the submarine force, that we really want to retain them. 
So we're doing we're at the statutory limit uh, for our bonus with that population. And we just shifted policy now to reward people for longer contracts, rewarding people for signing bonuses early. So we're really trying to bring a, a corporate model into the bonus structure such that it rewards people that want to stay Navy and have the company loyalty of being in this organization. And, and it, is it uh, too early to tell if it's working yet or, you know, is this like just just very recent that you've you know changed the, the, uh, the, the bonus culture or has this been a couple of years and you, you can actually start to see the success? Well, we've always kind of uh, mission matched, if you will, the demand signal with our bonus structure and kind of keep those step increments kind of to match the need. But what I just described is brand new, Bill. It is a, just hot off the press from the, our decision body that makes these decisions. So it would be too early to see the effects of that yet. So one of the next uh, topics in your article is preserving the edge. And if you you know look at proceedings over the last four or five years, we've had so much written about uh, the, the the Chinese fleet, the Chinese submarine force as it's growing and modernizing, also about the Russian submarine force. You know, Admiral Fogo wrote his now famous proceedings article called The Fourth Battle of the Atlantic a couple of years ago. And, uh, you know, talking about the, the Russian advanced uh, nuclear powered submarines, the Yasin class, et cetera, and what was happening uh, underwater in the Atlantic. So, um, you know, as you think about preserving the edge, you, you know, what what keeps you up at night from the Chinese and the Russians? What what are the what are the problems that they're presenting you? Well, I'll just start kind of at the bottom end of that question and uh, kind of move up um, uh, to the to the peer competitors. One of the challenges is so many countries have submarine forces, and not all of them have agreements with us on how we manage the water space. So just just the fact that um, the submarine forces that are out there today operating in the waters that we're operating in creates a, a mutual interference and water space management challenge for us. So that's that's kind of at the low end of the problem, you know, kind of moving through the different uh, folks that have submarines. You know, I kind of think of North Korea. A lot of people don't think about them, but they're trying to field a ballistic missile submarine. You know, they're doing ejection tests, and, uh, and they're going to try to put, you know, a missile that's capable of at least ranging their near uh, competitors there, you know, like South Korea, with a ballistic missile launch from a submarine. So there's a, a kind of a rogue state that's getting in the game at that level, and we're concerned about that. You know, Iran has got their, you know, small uh, submarines that they can move around the coast and the Straits of Hormuz there. And, you know, they can be a definite threat to our high-value units, so we're concerned about that. And then you kind of land onto your question, Bill, is Russia and China. I mean, Russia knows how to build great military hardware. They just don't have a lot of funds to actually follow through with that. If they had China's, you know, uh, money stream, they would really be the preeminent threat. They have made a decision to make their capital ships the submarines. Their nuclear submarines are their capital ships. They're not investing in large aircraft carriers. They're investing in things they have an asymmetric threat in, and submarines are one of those, along with cyberspace and space, anti-space. So uh, Russia builds a great kit, and they build a submarine, the Severovinsk. So it is a true threat to our homeland and to our high-value units in a conflict against them. China has just got an extremely large number of assets, Okay, and so, you know, there's a, a quality to quantity. It's here's a Navy that's been doubling in size for the last every 10 years for the last 30 years. 
So, you know, if they keep that pace, you know, they're soon going to have the largest Navy in the world and, and, and beat us. I think probably numerically they probably already do. And they, they're right on the edge on the submarines. It's just fortunate they don't have a big nuclear submarine force yet. Most of their submarines are still uh, diesel electric. But they do have four ballistic missile submarines in China that we have to think about that uh, proliferation. They're building two more. They're fielding a better weapon that can range further off of those submarines. So that's a threat. And just uh, just their, their ability to push out past the second island chain in any conflict with China is going to be something we have to deal with. So we're very concerned about China as well. You, you're talking about, uh, towards the end of the article, shipyard, what you call challenges. Uh, we've had some pretty big horror stories about months turning into years. Um, how are you tackling that problem? You know, it's interesting when uh, I talked to the CNO before he, right before he became the CNO, I saw him in the hallway in the E-ring in the Pentagon, and we had a quick discussion about what challenges he would face as the CNO. And I told him from the submarine force perspective, you know, the shipyard challenge would be one of his most uh, challenging one. It would be one of his largest ones that he would face. And it's a challenge of that order of magnitude because unlike most things that we have where I can put some effort in, put some money toward it, put some people toward it to fix it, the shipyard challenge is not something I have a lot of degrees of freedom and a lot of levers that I can fix in a short period of time. It took us a long time to get into the position we are with our, our public yard shipyards and our private yards, and it's not going to get fixed overnight. So it is a huge challenge. You know, back in the early 90s, we went from uh, eight nuclear-capable shipyards to four. So we have four public yards, and uh, that was a decision. And then during that same period of time, uh, we pretty much divested the p private yards from doing any uh, maintenance work. They just basically shifted over to only building submarines. And so we just incrementally over time accumulated a lot of submarines that are sitting idle today because their haul has expired. Their ability to submerge actually expires, not unlike an, a uh, an airplane's airframe eventually gets to a point where you can't fly it, but I don't have a place to put it in the shipyard. So we have, you know, anywhere between five to 10 submarines that are not in the yard being repaired. They're sitting pierside waiting for their turn to get in. And that ends up being about 10,000 days of idle time delays. So that's ships that are not going doing forward missions. That's ships that are not helping me do services here locally. And, uh, and so it's, it's, it is a true significant problem. And we do have uh, a concerted effort on that all the way up through the OPNAV and fleet staffs to get after that problem. So are those ships skeleton crew manning or how, how are they doing that? No, because they're ships with full up nuclear power plants on them. We really don't scale down the crew to any extent, but what we do do is we take folks on board those ships and we let them get underway with other ships and let them get mission time and deployment time and, and conduct operations on operational ships through augmentation. So in any ship that's sitting pierside idle, you may see, you know, five to 20 folks on that ship gone at any given time on other ships getting experience. And if I could, I just would mention a couple of things that we're doing uh, that's getting after that. Um, probably the biggest effort is what we call performance to plan. And our performance to plan effort is an analytical examination of our work to see the levers that we can pull that have the most return on investment. I'm part of the performance to plan and the submarine force, making sure I'm utilizing my submarines that I do have most efficiently for combat. And Vice Admiral Bill Galinas is doing a performance to plan project where he's looking holistically at his, at his Navy shipyards, 
it, everything kind of in a critical path view of tiering of this feeds this, this feeds that, and finding out those areas that are basically preventing him from achieving plan performance. And so by actually looking at those holistically, we know where we can put some effort into to get the most return on investment. So he's in charge of that. I'm also standing up two new submarine squadrons, and we're pretty excited about this. Uh, submarine Squadron 2, we're standing up at Portsmouth Naval Shipyard. And Submarine Squadron 8, we're standing up here in Norfolk to cover the boats that are in uh, um, Norfolk Naval and Newport News Shipyards. Those two uh, squadrons, for the first time in submarine history, will only have boats that are in the shipyards underneath them. And we think those that focus on, on those shipyard boats is going to help uh, uh, get those boats done more efficiently and effectively through those yard periods. And then lastly, just great relationships that we're building with the private yard. I have personal relationships with the leadership at Huntington Ingalls Newport News, and we're really trying to get their capacity and performance up to speed because we know the private yard has to be part of this solution to get that idle boat number back down to zero. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that you, you know, in the 90s you went down to four public yards and the four private yards were mainly just building new construction, right? So now it sounds like you're getting those private yards into the maintenance picture as well. That's correct. It went down to two private yards, just electric boat up in Groton uh, and, and Newport News shipbuilding over here in Newport News, Hampton Roads. But they're also yes, getting we, into they the are. They are definitely too. an important part of this problem helping us. We have got to get the private yards capacity, not just building the submarines, but actually helping us repair them to help be a relief valve, if you will, to get the public yards the space they need to, uh, to get that idle number back down. So uh, a little bit ago, sir, you talked about the, the USS Newport News, 137-day deployment. We've published a few things in the last couple of years about the sort of disconnect between supply and demand for naval forces, right? That the demand is almost insatiable from the, the COCOMs. Uh, and the supply side, particularly with this maintenance problem, it's not just the submarine force, but also aircraft carriers, it's surface ships, et cetera, right? So is there... Would would releasing some of the supply or sorry some of the demand signal, if if that backed off a little bit, could that help your problem with maintenance getting caught up on maintenance, or is some of it just hey after a certain number of months or years a submarine has to go in the yards whether it's been sitting pier side or whether it's been out operating just because that's the the constraints that we have we don't dive boats unless they've been through a yard period in a certain number of years. Yeah, Bill, it's the latter. Um, you know, a submarine has an operational cycle that it's put through, and we just don't operate it through its life without going into a depot period where we really inspect all the tanks, the ballast tanks, the internal structures, the propulsion train, all the trim and drain and seawater systems. All those have to get looked at, Any, especially anything that's under submergence pressure. We make sure that those things are completely squared away. You know, a huge lesson learned in the post-thresher phase with the subsafe program. And uh, we just, you know, made a commitment to ourselves that we're going to make sure we get those boats and get a good look at those systems that have to operate it through these cycles of submerging and surfacing. But, you know, to your other point, I, I think it, we do have a, a larger demand than I can supply for submarines worldwide by the combatant commanders. But I think under the national defense strategy and under the leadership from that, that I've seen in, you know, in the last five years in particular, but certainly the last couple of years, I see a very uh, well-informed discussion at the service chief, 
COCOM uh, Secretary of Defense level on meeting that demand signal through a very deliberate approach of putting boats where we have the most priority. It's a very healthy system of how we're doing global force management and directed readiness. And I think that uh, we've made big changes in, in making sure that we just don't flow forces in a place just for the sake of flowing them there, but they're actually are meeting the needs of the combatant commanders through a very deliberate and equitable process. So we're talking about the challenges to current readiness. Let's shift and talk about future readiness, program of record. Uh, obviously, in your article, you talk about how the Ohio class is starting to sunset, Columbia class coming online. Are you satisfied with the program of record? Do you like what's coming down the pike? For the strategic deterrent, uh, yes, I absolutely love it. It's got the right attention. It's the Department of Defense as well as the Navy's number one priority. Uh, it gets a lot of attention through the program office. Uh it's got everyone's attention to naval reactors. It's certainly got mine. It comes with it a dedicated look at the, uh, the base at Kings Bay and in Bangor, Washington, to make sure we're ready. So it's a lot more to this than just giving me a Columbia. I've got to have the trainers ready for those new systems. I've got to have a world-class maintenance organization that's ready to keep it repaired. I've got to have uh, the infrastructure at the base to be able to dry dock it. So uh, there's tales to these things, and all that's being looked at in a very deliberate and holistic fashion, and I am satisfied. I'll get Columbia in 2028, and she'll go on patrol in 2030 to 2031, and I don't have any doubt that'll happen. And it's going to be, okay, so you said the time part. How about the budget part? Is it going to be on, on the, the cost uh, schedule that we're looking at? I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be. I've, 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 we had some, you know, like anything, there's a little bit of a creep in initial design to when you really start actually executing, but I've not seen any creep really of any significance since we've now we're in execution mode. And how about the fast attack replacements? Because you mentioned the outset, the LA class, again, time goes by, all of a sudden the LA class are really old. Yeah, and we're going to be sunsetting, you know, our SSGNs. You know, we converted the first four uh, SSB and Ohio class to guided missile uh, ships, and they're going to be the first to go. And uh, and so how are we replacing those is through our Block 5 Virginia, where we're putting a Virginia payload module on those ships, and uh, they'll carry an additional uh, uh, 28 Tomahawks on board those ships for a total of 40. So uh, because we're going to be fielding those, those will be what will replace those GNs. And then we're making more and more uh, Virginia class capable of doing special force operations. And so we've shifted, we're going to be shifting our model. Instead of just having GNs predominantly do that mission, we're going to be able to have a lot more Virginia class be able to insert seals where we want to uh, release and recover UVs when we want to. So we're kind of distributing that capability across the Virginia class platforms. At the end of your article, you talk about commander's intent and and uh, your work. That's it's not just your intent, but also the submarine force Pacific Admiral Converse, uh, his intent as well. Uh, just walk us through the the main uh, elements of your your intent. 3.0. Well, 3.0. Yep, it's uh, it's probably the the uh, the work over my first year here at, at Subland that I've put a dedicated team on to make sure we got this document right. It is a new release, and it is fundamentally different. First, it's not signed by, it used to be signed by Subland, Subpack, and N97. Well, we moved uh, the N97 piece out of that and made it true commander's intent. And uh, the, so the two force commanders signed it. So that's one significant change. And all those parts of why N97 signed the previous ones have been moved into the secret annexes, the 10 annexes, that are at the secret level that support that commander's intent. 
really what's new for readers when you look at it one besides it just it's just a beautiful document i'm very proud of it by the way but uh you'll see in it that we finally define what the submarine force ethos is and so we had never had an ethos that where we took the time to actually think about what do we value as a force and uh and describe that in some detail so uh, I, I welcome your readers to go look at the ethos piece in that and then the other new part that's brand new is we finally give guidance to what we call the theater undersea warfighting commander. So when you're a theater undersea warfighting commander who own all undersea forces, not just submarines, but maritime patrol aircraft, crew dads, and, and other forces that fight in the undersea, we give guidance to our expectation on that. So it's a, it's a pretty important document. It is on the Sublant website, so anyone can read it. It is unclassified. Well, in normal times, sir, we'd say we look forward to seeing you at the Sub League uh, convention. Obviously, that's going to be a virtual thing. What I will mention to our listeners, if you're listening to the show, um, I would assume you have interest in submarines, but if you're not a member of the Naval Institute, we have a thing called Open Access that's running for registrants of Submarine League and sub Submarine League members. So check that out on the Submarine League website. Um, it's What it is is a month worth of basically member benefits to the Naval Institute. And we've also aggregated our best submarine titles, massive discounts on those. So if you're not a member of the Naval Institute, this is a way to try with no risk. Um, and we've been doing this with the various communities during their virtual symposia. So we're very happy to do this uh, next month during Sub League. And also October is our submarine theme. Um, so check out all of our content, including the Admiral's article in that issue. One of the best articles, I think, in our archive is uh, Lieutenant Chester Nimitz's 1912 Proceedings article, where he talked about how the submarine was going to change the face of and the, the, uh, the conduct of naval warfare. It's just a wonderful, seminal piece. And you go, okay, Nimitz, five-star, got it. But he started writing for Proceedings, like a lot of future uh, Navy leaders started writing for proceedings when he was a J.O., in his case, Lieutenant Ernest J. King, or, uh, sorry, Lieutenant uh, Chester Nimitz. We also had, uh, we also have, you can find it on our website, you can find the piece by uh, Lieutenant Ernest J. King, 1909. Uh, he won the General Prize Essay Contest for us. So. Well, but that Nimitz piece it's, uh, is a cool one for sub-fans, because they're, they're talking about diesel nausea and all kinds of stuff. There's the, the granular detail in there is amazing. So if, you, if you're a member, you go into our archives, type in Nimitz, it'll come up. It'll be one of the first natural search results. I use that article when I'm talking to NROTC units as part of our sponsored student membership program just to go, hey, look, if you're on the fence about accepting your sponsored student gift, check this out. It's just a super cool article, as you said, Bill, by a Lieutenant Chester Nimitz. 30 years later, he'd have, be a five-star running yeah. The war in the Pacific. So it's, that is an amazing, amazing piece. All right. So our guest this afternoon has been Vice Admiral Daryl Cottle. He is Commander U.S. Submarine Forces. His article in the October issue of Proceedings starts on page 20. It is called Sustaining the Submarine Forces Competitive Edge. Admiral Cottle, thanks for joining us on the show today. You're certainly welcome, and thank you for having me. All right. That wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. We will catch you next week. Until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.